today is one of those messages where I'm going to make no guarantees about the content or the quality. Is that encouraging? <laughs> but I do promise you that when you leave, if somebody asks you, hey, what was the message about today? You will be able to tell them in no uncertain terms. It is not complicated. It is fact, uh, it is based on a very brief passage of Scripture. Jesus is talking in Matthew chapter 7, and he says these words, Do not judge, or you too will be judged. For in the same way you judge others, you will be judged, and with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. This happens to be one of the passages in Scripture where I think the old King James Version has like the perfect edge to it. The old King James says, Thou shalt not judge. Now, just to make sure that you can tell everybody that you know after this service what the sermon was about, we're going to say that phrase together, okay? See it? Let's say it together. Thou shalt not judge. That's pretty good. We're going to take it up a notch. Okay, I want everybody to hold up their index finger. Make sure you have the right finger up here. Okay. <laughs> I'm sure you don't have a problem being judgmental, but somebody sitting next to you, maybe right next to you, probably does. So we're going to say it one more time, and this time we're going to say it with a little bit of a sanctified finger wagging, okay? We're going to say, thou shalt not judge, and you're just going to kind of shake it, okay? Here we go, ready? Thou shalt not judge. Good. When Jesus said, thou shalt not judge, here's a question. How many exceptions does Jesus allow for in that statement? Of what kind of people, based on their personality, which I'm sure drives you crazy, their faults, which are many and deep, their weird religious beliefs, which we all know are wrong, their sexuality, their sexual orientation, their politics, their tattoos, are just their sheer unlikability? How many in those does Jesus say, of course you can condemn them? Of course they merit condemnation. You see, here's the deal. The answer is no one. He gives no exceptions, no loopholes. He doesn't say, you know, try not to make a habit of judging. Or don't judge people unless they absolutely have it coming. He just says there's zero tolerance policy of a judgmental spirit. In fact, Jesus got in trouble for his refusal to be judgmental toward everybody else, especially religious leaders and who they judged. We're told one time in the Gospels, but the Pharisees and the teachers of the law muttered, this man welcomes sinners and eats with them. See, where people expected Jesus to give judgment and condemnation because they thought that was the moral thing to do, Jesus kept bringing welcome and acceptance. In fact, Jesus uniformly extended non-judgmental acceptance to ethnic rejects, religious heretics, pagans, Samaritans, the sexually scandalous, to the corrupt and traitorous tax collectors, and even to the unclean and the untouched lepers. The only people, interestingly enough, that Jesus condemned were religious leaders who condemned other people. To the religious leaders who pass judgment, listen to these words from Jesus. I know you Pharisees burnish the surface of your cups and plates so they sparkle in the sun, but I also know your insides are maggoty with greed and secret evil. Stupid Pharisees, I've had it with you. 
You are frauds. You're just like unmarked graves. One of the religious scholars spoke up. Teacher, do you realize that in saying these things, you're insulting us? And Jesus said, yes, and I can be even more explicit. <laughs> he was incredibly non-judgmental with sinners of every kind except one. And that is Christian or religious people who judged others. See, this flows out of the very purpose of Jesus. For God did not send his son Jesus into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. Paul writes later on that Jesus is so opposed to condemnation that there therefore is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. He says none, not a trace, not a little bit. There is none. See, people misunderstand this today. Jesus' purpose in coming was to overthrow the spirit of condemnation and judgmentalism. His, his goal was to bring acceptance to all of humanity. His practice was to refuse to engage in judging and instead offer welcome and acceptance, oftentimes at great personal cost. Therefore, doesn't it stand to reason that the church, the fellowship that was founded by Jesus in his spirit, must be the least judgmental place on the face of the earth? And Christians must be the least judgmental people on the face of this earth. If Christians are known for anything, if the church gets known for anything, it has to be this, that this is a place that is radically inclusive, non-judgmental, grace-offering, soul-healing, fear-melting, misfit-embracing community of irrational acceptance. Here's what people have to be able to say. They have to be able to say, you know, I have some very dark secrets, and I'm afraid to tell my therapist this. I'm afraid to tell the people at the bar this. I'm afraid to tell my 12-step group this. I'm even afraid to tell my best friend and my dog this. But I can stand up and say this about myself in the middle of church because I know that's a place where nobody judges. <laughs> if you're sitting next to a stranger on an airplane or a bus... And you look, and it seems like they may be having problems. Maybe there's someone you're not used to hanging around with, like heavily tattooed people or heavily pierced, and maybe they're drinking a lot on that airplane fight. The first thing you should tell them is, hey, I'm a religious person. I'm a Christ follower. So they will say back to you, oh, my goodness, I'm so glad. My life is so messed up. I was afraid I was going to sit next to somebody who might judge me. But now that I know you're a religious person, I'm going to tell you everything about my life. Do you get the point? Now, how are Christians doing about this and with this? A guy named Dave Kinnaman researched a book a few years ago. And the number one finding in his research was the primary characteristic non-Christians associate with Christians was being judgmental. In spite of the fact that Jesus' clear teaching is, thou shalt not judge. And I've heard Christians over the years try to justify this by saying, well, you know, the real problem isn't really Christians. It's just that non-Christians don't want to be confronted with hard moral truth. Hard moral truth. That could be the case, maybe. 
But it's kind of funny how Jesus, the one that we serve and the one that we follow, when people met him, he was the holiest man they had ever met, and he was also the most non-judgmental man they had ever encountered. So maybe the word holy means something different than a lot of people think it means. I'll say this again. The message is simple. Thou shalt not judge. We have to abandon in this Christian community the deeply rooted practice of blaming and condemning other people and even ourselves. Jesus talks about this in the Sermon on the Mount, which is what we're talking about these days. And when we get to the seventh chapter of Matthew, Jesus begins talking about how people tend to mess up relational patterns in their life. And he says, here's how relationships should work in the kingdom of God. First of all, no judging. Now, let's be really clear on here what Jesus forbids. So let me say something about what the text does not mean. First, it does not mean that we have to give up moral discernment or being wise people. That's not what Jesus is saying. For example, if you go to the dentist and your dentist checks out your mouth and says, I see your gums are receding, I see a cavity or two, it looks like you haven't been flossing very much, that's your dentist's job. The dentist is not condemning you as a person. If your dentist were to say to you, you know, you're an idiot. I've seen better looking teeth in a comb. Your teeth are yellow, stained, dirty, crooked, disgusting. I despise your so-called oral hygiene. It's really more like oral low gene. I recommend you change dentists. <laughs> See, in our families and workplaces, in our relationships, in our homes... We have to discern right from wrong. We have to train ourselves to hold people responsible, discuss openly their failures and our failures. Maybe even sometimes there has to be a penalty that's appropriate. But you don't attack someone's worth or you don't forget their dignity as a human being. Also, Jesus is saying, you don't have to be mistreated. You don't have to put up with that. An extended family member sent me an email one time and it read, If you want to know who loves you more, your spouse or your dog, lock them both up in the closet when you leave in the morning. When you come home, let them out and see which one is happiest to see you. <laughs> that is not what Jesus is presenting here. You do not have to take mistreatment. What Jesus is talking about is he's forbidding the spirit of condemnation and rejection. It means indulging this desire I have to want to feel superior to you. See, I don't want to be humble. I don't want to think about your humanity. I want that little sharp twinge of pleasure that comes when I express contempt toward you. See, the kingdom of this earth has trained us to do this. We have trained ourselves and others to pass judgment as a way of trying to control people, listen, and to kind of indulge our own spirit. We can do it now in our society without even uttering a word. Have you ever passed somebody in another car and they just pass kind of road judgment on you? They do it with a single eyebrow, a glance, a look. <laughs> Some of you have had it done recently, I can see. So here's the question. If judging is something that Jesus really says that's forbidden... If it damages other people, if it hurts our own spirit, the question is, why would anybody do it? 
And the reason I'm going to give you is not very theological, but I really believe it's true. The basic reason is because it's fun. Most of us do it recreationally. You ever notice how religious people in particular have this problem? And often the more devout they are in their religiosity, the more judgmental they become. And here's the way it works. We'll be judgmental toward people we're jealous of because we're afraid that they might actually be having more fun than we are. They might actually be having more of the good life than we are. You know, Jesus, one of his most unforgettable stories, and it really is a portrait of judgmentalism, is the parable of the prodigal son. He says in this story that the boy, the prodigal son, goes off and squanders his inheritance on reckless living. That's Jesus' words. And then he comes to his senses. He wakes up and he comes back home and his father rejoices. But his older brother is ticked off and he even says to his father, look at this. Look, all these years I've been slaving for you and never disobeyed your orders. Yet you never gave me a young goat so I could celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours who has squandered your property with prostitutes comes home, you kill the fatted calf for him. This may be one of the most brilliant portraits of judging in all of literature. Notice he says to his dad, this son of yours, <laughs> not this brother of mine. Mark it down. Love always identifies with someone. Judgment always distances itself from someone. Earlier in the story, Jesus never said anything about prostitutes. The older brother evidently just makes that up. <laughs> He just kind of throws that one in there. Now, see, here's his mindset. His mindset is, I'm afraid I'm missing out. I'm afraid that the good life is really just having as much sex as you can with as many people as you can and drinking as much alcohol and partying as much as you can. That's what I would do if I could, but since I can't, since I'm such a good boy, I get to have all this fun at home. See, sometimes self-righteous Christians, and I'm going to tell you, I describe myself in that category. We pretend that we're above earthly pleasure. We're above fleshly desires. Oh, we're far past that now. Let me tell you something. At least for a season, you can cut it any way you want. Let me tell you something. Sin is fun. This is why people sin, friends. It's fun. A pastor by the name of Craig Groeschel says, he puts it like this, if sin isn't fun, you aren't doing it right. <laughs> that's not in the Bible, that's just his opinion. See, a lot of times Christians get real self-righteous and real judgmental because down deep we're afraid we're missing out on fun. And judging makes it fun. There's a television show, I know no one has ever seen it, called The Simpsons. One of the characters is a guy named Ned Flanders. He's actually an evangelical Christian neighbor of Homer and Marge Simpson. And he says one time that he and his wife had just been away to a Christian camp where they were learning how to be more judgmental. And his wife says in the episode, I don't judge Homer and Marge, that's for a vengeful God to do. You see, in our day, not just religious people, really everybody, we're all trained to be judgmental. I read something brilliant this week 
from a philosopher, a really good writer, Elaine de Botton. And he writes about the differences between the genre of tragedy and modern tabloid journalism. In other words, uh, things like uh, Othello and Macbeth and King Lear and Oedipus. In those uh, tragedies in literature, what happens is the audience identifies with the central character, like the tragic character in the story. And because of that, the audience experiences humility themselves because they think, that could be me. And they actually have empathy toward the characters who fall. He talks about how in modern tabloid journalism, it's exactly the other way around. He says, in our day, we are encouraged to be arrogant, to have contempt for people who fall, to hubris about ourselves. And the posture that he says now is, can you believe how stupid that politician, or stupid that movie star, or stupid that CEO, or that celebrity was? Of course, we would never do what they did. It's the exact opposite of what great tragic literature really tried to do. We've trained now. Can you believe how dumb they were? And Jesus now invites us into a kingdom, <laughs> away from the kingdom of this earth, where we simply lay down judgmentalism and condemning spirits and superiority and blaming. So let's see. So far in this message, what has it been about? Okay? Everybody remember? Let's say it together. Thou shalt not. Very good. Let's get our finger out. Okay, everybody get the finger out. Say it one more time. You don't have to point it toward me as much. You can point it toward other people too. Okay. So this week, here's what we're going to do. We're going to try to do what we can't do on our own. We're going to ask God to make us an oasis of acceptance in a desert of condemnation. Let's just start where we live. Let's just start with a roommate or a family member. How are you doing just with those folks? C.S. Lewis wrote this. He says, we hear a great deal about the rudeness of the rising generation. I'm an oldster myself and might be expected to take the oldster side. But in fact, I have been far more impressed by the bad manners of parents to children than, than by those of children to parents. Who has not been the embarrassed guest at family meals where the father or mother treated their grown-up offspring with an incivility which offered to any other young people would simply have terminated the acquaintance? Dogmatic assertions on matters which the children understand and their elders don't, ruthless interruptions, flat-out contradictions, ridicule of things that the young take seriously, sometimes of their religion, insulting references to their friends, all provide an easy answer to the question, why are they always gone? Why do they like every other house better than their own home? Who does not prefer civility to barbarism? So ask yourself, how do I communicate rejection and judgmentalism and contempt in my family or my school or my classroom? How about at work where you have a really difficult person how about when you see a homeless person or you see someone struggling with their weight or with their health? See, part of the condition that we've been talking about in this sermon of Jesus, this Sermon on the Mount, 
is that we can't stop sinning by trying to stop sinning. You can't stop being judgmental, friends, by trying hard not to be judgmental. You have to ask God to replace a spirit of judgment with the spirit-empowered, reality-based, genuine acceptance of people. This is what Jesus is talking about when he says, For in the same way you judge others, you will be judged. And with this measure you use, it will be measured to you. What Jesus is doing here is he's observing a general law of the human condition, which we call the law of reciprocity. The law of reciprocity. He's observing here this general law that you tend to get what you give out. If you give love, you tend to get love. If you give anger, you tend to get anger. If you give distance, you tend to get distance. If you give sarcasm, you tend to get sarcasm. If you give joy, you tend to get joy. With the measure you use, it will be measured to you. So let's just imagine something. Let's imagine a bucket here and a thimble here. Every day you get to decide what measure you're going to use. Do you give a bucket of encouragement or do you give a thimble? Do you give a bucket of mercy or a thimble? Do you give a bucket of anger to people or a thimble? And Jesus says it's the exact same way with judgment. And Jesus says, whatever way you want others to judge you, you will be judged. In other words, judge others as you would like to be judged. Now, how would I like to be judged? Let's think about it. How much mercy do I want? A bucket or a thimble? Listen, when you judge me, because I know some of you do, because I'm going to mess up. I would prefer, this is my preference, I would prefer you give me a bucket of mercy. I would prefer that you remember that I've got a story behind my life. I would like you to take into account that sometimes I do things that are dumb, that I've got a certain genetic pool that I had to kind of pull from, that my genes and my deficiencies, listen, I've got hidden pains. I want you to remember I'm a middle child. I'm pretty introverted. I'm insecure. For crying out loud, I'm a Cowboys fan. <laughs> Listen, I want a bucket full of mercy. And the question is, what do I give? When I look at other people, do I remember they have a story? And they have a certain genetic pool. And they have a certain wounds. And they grew up in a certain family. And they have certain scars with certain parents and certain hurts. All kind of junk has happened in their life. And the question is, do I give it with a thimble or do I give it with a bucket? I want to tell you something. This will change the world. When you see past the surface failure and the shame and the unloveliness of a human being and you start giving out buckets of mercy, it will change a life. In their book entitled Switch, The Heath brothers tell a classic story about a guy named Tom Watson. He was the CEO of IBM way back in the 60s and 70s, even the 50s and 60s. And one of his executives made a business decision, one of the guys in the company, that ended up costing IBM about $10 million. Now back then, as you know, it's a huge amount of money, and today it's a huge amount of money, but especially back then, 
And this guy knew that when he made this mistake, he was toast. So he came into Watson's office with a letter of resignation already written up. And he said to Tom Watson, he said, I'm assuming that you've called me here to fire me. And Watson said, fire you? Of course not. I just spent $10 million educating you. He said, I can't afford to fire you. Go back to work. Now let's think about Peter after he had denied Jesus three times. Failed at his greatest opportunity and moment of need. He meets Jesus after the crucifixion and after the resurrection. And I can imagine old Peter just saying, Jesus, I suppose you're going to fire me. And Jesus says, fire you. I just invested a crucifixion in you. I just invested a resurrection in you. I'm not in the passing judgment business. Get back to work. Feed my sheep. Can you imagine the relief and the joy and the passion that must have flooded Peter's soul to know that I'm dealing with a guy who doesn't pass judgment? Listen, I know this is hard. This is the hardest thing I think that any Christian has to do. I know there are people who keep making the same mistakes over and over, but don't we all? I know there's somebody in your life who is very unlovable, but listen, aren't we all? I know there's somebody who's greedy or needy or just plain right mean, but you know what? Aren't we all sometimes? People at about this point usually ask me a question. They'll usually say something like this. Well, Phil, then you tell me how in our world today do I stand up for the right without being self-righteous? I'm going to give you the best wisdom I've ever heard on this. It's from one of my favorite authors. I know I quote him way too much. But Dallas Willard was asked one time this very question. And he used to say that the two main elements of job discipleship were this. He said, do you work diligently with God's help? And then, here's the second thing, offer gentle non-cooperation with evil. <laughs> Some of you should write this down. Offer gentle non-cooperation with evil. And one of Dallas's friends was writing about this one time, and he used to wonder all the time, what in the world did he mean when he said this? And this is what this guy writes. He says, it occurred to me one day after I had known Dallas for many years that I never saw him or heard him gossip. When other people were with Dallas, they didn't gossip either. We just never gossiped. I thought about why is it? And it occurred to me that when you gossip, you do it because you get a little reward from the person with whom you're gossiping. The other person leans forward a little bit. They listen a little more eagerly. They get a little bit excited. You both get that little thrill of gratification from feeling superior to the poor person that you're gossiping about. What I realized one day was in Dallas, there was literally nothing in him, in his body, at the cellular level that would ever collude with gossip. It's not that he spoke up and said, thou shalt not gossip. I mean, he could have said that. But if you were to gossip, he would just take a, like, a little disinterested look, or he even would look a little sad. He would never ask for more details, and you would get absolutely zero gratification from. It was no fun to gossip with Dallas. I'm going to say it again. If sin isn't fun, you're not doing it right. And sin, as it turns out, is fragile in many ways. And one of the ways is generally sin requires collusion to be sustained. 
So as a follower of Jesus, when we offer gentle non-cooperation with evil, we stop sin in its tracks. Isn't that amazing? So here's the deal. Let's ask God to help us to live in the vitality of the kingdom, to have enough joy, listen, of being loved by God and alive in this amazing world where our God feeds the birds and dresses the flowers, that sin will stop being fun. Just offer habitual, gentle, non-cooperation with evil. Listen, and you don't have to even say it to someone. You don't have to look at your gossipy, judgmental co-worker and say, listen, I want you to watch me. I'm going to gently, gently not cooperate with your evil. <laughs> you don't even have to say anything. This is a kingdom. Thou shalt not judge. Now listen. You still have to get feedback. You still have to get correction. You still have to get discernment and all that. But we can ask God to receive all that without the spirit of condemnation and shame. And that brings us to the primary way that relationships get off track. And we'll kind of close out today with this. Jesus says, do not judge. And then he says, this is powerful. Why do you look at the speck of sawdust in your brother's eye and pay no attention to the plank in your own eye? How can you say to your brother, let me take that speck out of your eye when all the time there is a plank in your own eye? You hypocrite. First take the plank out of your own eye and then you will see clearly to remove the speck from your brother's eye. Here's how you can divide people up in the world. Two categories. There's everybody else and there's you. There's only two circles. Now here's a question. Which of these two circles are you in charge of? Everybody else or you? It's not a trick question. You. Which circle are you not in charge of? Everybody else. See, Jesus is not trained to be subtle here. <laughs> okay. There are other people's faults and then there's my faults. Now you would think you would think that we'd be much more aware of my faults than I would be of other people's faults. You would think I would notice my own problems first because they're my problems, but sometimes I don't notice them at all. I'll be like, plank? What plank are you talking about? I saw a refrigerator magnet one time. It read, I didn't say you were wrong. I said I was going to blame you. Here's my problem. My problem is my mom. My problem is my spouse. My problem is I don't have a spouse. My problem is this place where I work. My problem is I don't have a place to work. My problem is you. I can see your tiny little problem, but I, for the life of me, can't see my great big problem. I cannot see my habit of blaming and judging and avoiding responsibility is my problem. I'm telling you, people go their entire lives, friends, and they never, ever even identify that their own real problem is them. This is so common to humanity that right now, at least a few of you are thinking about somebody that you wish were here so they could listen to this message. Right? The good news is they are here. <laughs> the bad news is it's you. <laughs> See, the idea is, is that this is what the church is supposed to be about. 
We actually cheer people on for owning their mistakes and their sin. We quit looking at somebody else's speck and we start looking at this huge two by four in our own eye. Some of you have heard of the serenity prayer. God grant me the, you know, serenity to accept the things I cannot change, the courage to change the things I can, the wisdom to know the difference. There's another version of this serenity prayer that's very appropriate for today. It says, God grant me the serenity to accept the people I cannot change, the courage to change the one I can, and the wisdom to know it's me. In Milton's Paradise Lost, this great work, there's a wonderful long portrayal of the first man and woman where they're blaming, blaming each other. And Milton ends it with these words. He says, Thus they in mutual accusation spent the fruitless hours, but neither self-condemning, and of their vain contest appeared no end. Now here's a question. Do you think Adam and Eve were the last married couple to spend fruitful hours in mutual accusation? <laughs> I'm not saying we don't confront each other and we don't have to speak some hard words sometimes. Of course we do. But I'm talking about the plank. There was a brilliant thinker at Stanford by the name of Gerard. He was actually converted to Christianity as an adult and it was kind of really interesting how it happened. He began reading about the theme of blame in literature and how throughout history, how toxic and destructive blame had been. And then he started reading about it in the Bible and seeing how God had turned things around completely. Here's the idea. <coughs> all people, all societies, all cultures have a custom of what they call scapegoating. Scapegoating is that practice where you find somebody or some group and you, play, you, you kind of pin the blame on them, even for things that aren't necessarily their fault. Gerard says this is almost like a safety valve in culture. It's like all the blame for resentment and rivalry and anger, all that gets put on them so we don't have to own it ourselves. For example, a kid in grade school might get picked uh, picked on because they're different or they act differently or they're clumsy or maybe they're considered unattractive. Listen, nobody holds a meeting and votes and says, hey, they're going to be it. But everybody in the classroom knows who the scapegoat is. There's a whole movement of family systems theory was actually developed a couple of decades ago. It said that families very often have scapegoats. It's the one kid in the family who is the black sheep or who all the problems get blamed on so mom and dad don't have to look at it themselves. Gerard just says, listen, he says, every nation has had a scapegoat. For Hitler, it was above all else the Jewish people. For Stalin, it was the dissidents. In Rwanda, it was the Tutsi. Now in the Bible, in the Old Testament, in the book of Leviticus chapter 16, the Day of Atonement, we call this Yom Kippur, the priest would actually, on the Day of Atonement, choose a goat out of a certain lot. It was called the scapegoat. He would put his hands on it, he would confess the sins of Israel over it, and he would release it into the wilderness simply as a picture of the sins of Israel being removed and forgiven by God. It was this powerful picture, and that's where the, the concept of a scapegoat comes from. Now get this. Gerard said that in ancient cultures outside of Israel, 
Sacrifices very often involved human beings. Human victims who were sacrificed to placate or appease their God. They were human scapegoats, which meant all the problems of the society, all the tribe problems were pinned on them. And the concept was that sacrificing them would heal the community from chaos that nobody wanted to own. In fact, the idea that scapegoating a victim would heal the community's problem was so deep that the Greek word for victim, the victim who would be sacrificed, the Greek word was pharmakos, where we get our word pharmacology. <laughs> to this day, nobody likes to go to the pharmacy. We see this dynamic at work in the Bible in the story of Cain and Abel. Cain, unlike his brother Abel, fails to offer God a proper sacrifice. He gets upset. He gets angry. He doesn't take responsibility. And instead of owning it and making things right, he scapegoats his brother and kills him. Gerard noticed in the Bible something unprecedented happens. This is so powerful. He says stories of blame, of scapegoating, would be told but then these stories are actually sympathetic to the victim, to the scapegoat. God begins to care about the victims. God condemns the act of people and families and nations scapegoating other people. In the Bible, the ancient universal practice of scapegoating begins to be undermined and begins to collapse. And all of this comes to a climax in the person of Jesus. Jesus, the holy, the innocent one, utterly blameless, without sin. And all the powers of that world, religious leaders, political leaders, money changers in the temple, all decide, you're the problem, Jesus. So they make Jesus the scapegoat. And the guy who could have saved him, Pontius Pilate, he washes his hands publicly and he says, oh, don't blame me. See, that's the way we do things. Nobody is innocent except Jesus. And on the cross, friends, Jesus lays bare the mechanism, the evil, the violence, the injustice, the wickedness of scapegoating. And in Christ's great love, he absorbs all the sin and the hatred and the violence and the wickedness of this world. And in his resurrection, he says, listen, now this way of scapegoating and condemning and judging is over. We're done. No more. He became, against all odds, the final scapegoat. And this is why in his community, everybody's welcome. And nobody's perfect. But anything is possible. So this morning, we pray, God, will you help us? Will you help us, help us, help us? to not judge and not condemn and not blame others. To prepare our hearts for the week ahead, we're going to take a moment to kind of own this scripture and we're going to engage in a time of what we call confessional prayer. Uh, Bev Lamp, uh, one of our members here, is going to come and help us lead in that along with Mikkel. And what I want to encourage you to do is to take a time here of more than just saying words on a screen. I'm going to ask you to really let God do something in your heart about this subject today. It's really crucial. Let's take responsibility and let's ask ourselves, do we want a thimble of mercy or do we want a bucket of mercy?
Let's pray. Pray this prayer with me. Gracious God, our sins are too heavy to carry, too real to hide, and too deep to undo. Forgive what our lips tremble to name, what our hearts can no longer bear, and what has become for us a consuming fire of judgment. Set us free from a past that we cannot change. Open to us a future in which we can be changed and grant us grace to grow more and more in your likeness and image through Jesus Christ, the light of the world. Most merciful God, we confess that we have sinned against you in thought, word, and deed by what we have done and by what we have left undone. We have not loved you with our whole heart. We have not loved our neighbors as ourselves. We are truly sorry and we humbly repent for the sake of your Lord, Son, Jesus Christ. Have mercy on us and forgive us that we may delight in your will and walk in your ways. The Lord is compassionate and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in loving kindness. He has not dealt with us according to our sins, nor rewarded us according to our iniquities. For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his loving kindness toward those who fear him. As far as the east is from the west, so far has he removed our transgressions from us. Amen. And Lord, I ask that you seal this in our hearts so that we can truly be Christ followers in a world that desperately needs welcoming and acceptance. May people come to know us as safe people who they can open up to and never fear for one moment, they will be judged and condemned. I pray that in Christ's name, amen.